I feel like the emergence of Asian Americans, in particular in comedy, is really um, my greatest contribution. Like, if I can just lean back and let all the kids do the work, like that to me, I basically um, given the business to my children. Hey, everybody, I'm Chris Cuomo, and welcome to another episode of the Chris Cuomo Project. Please subscribe. Please follow. Wear your independence. That's what the free agent merch is all about. I want to get money together that we can kind of crowdsource contributions from. That's what the whole idea is about. We have new designs, new clothes. Take a look. See what you like. Now, speaking of what you like, funny is one of our best commodities in our culture. And Margaret Cho has been making us laugh with observational comedy, which is my favorite, I don't know about you, for a long time. And the interesting thing is, she's still right in like the meat of her power band, right? I mean, it's not like she's been doing it forever and she's 78. She's still in her prime and she is all about the shine. And I wanted to talk to her, not just like about jokes and how to make each other laugh and all that stuff, but where are we? What are we doing to ourselves in our culture? What are her concerns what does she make of these recent mass shootings by older Asian Americans? What is it to be Asian in America? Are we supposed to be moving past that term? Should we be more specific about people's identity? And what is our future in terms of what's okay and what's not okay and how we determine that? What does she think about Dave Chappelle? There's a lot on the table for one of the funniest people I know, Margaret Cho. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from AG1. Listen, my brothers and sisters, you know that I take my health seriously, right? I'm an aging athlete. I'm dealing with long COVID. That's why AG1 is a big part of my game, and I have been taking it for many years. Why? Because it's one and done. I don't have to worry about the combinations. I don't have to worry about the price the same way. It's so much less expensive than taking all these things separately. And... It's the deliverability. It's just a scoop and a glass of warm water for me, but you can put a scoop of it in whatever you want. And boop, down the hatch, and that's that. People ask me all the time, AG1, do you really take it? Yeah, it's all over my house. And I've been drinking it for a long time, and I think it works. I have partnered with AG1 for so long because they make a high-quality product that I trust to have as part of my routine every day. So, you want to replace whatever you're doing now? Start AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription at drinkag1.com slash ccp. That's drinkag1.com slash ccp. Check it out. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Cozy Earth. Let me tell you, bedding matters. And this isn't just me telling you this. In a recent survey... Seven out of 10 parents said that they get an average of three hours of sleep a night in the baby's first year. Hello, Greg. Now, mommies need quality sleep, and bedding will matter. There are other variables, but here's one that you can control, okay? When we made the switch to Cozy Earth, I noticed the difference. I did not know 
that fabric or textiles could really be temperature sensitive, meaning if it's cold, they keep you warm. If it's warm, they can kind of cool you off. I did not know that. I know it now because I have cozy earth, okay? So this Mother's Day, why don't you treat the mamas in your life to the luxury they deserve with cozy earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health? Doesn't she deserve it? Mm-hmm. Don't forget, use my promo code CHRIS at checkout and you get 35% off at CozyEarth.com, okay? When you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the dropdown and that will make me very happy. Margaret Cho, what a gift to the Chris Cuomo Project podcast. Big fan. Thank you for joining. Thank you very much. I'm so thrilled to see you and meet you virtually. This is awesome. Well, I've been watching you for a long time. Personal story, all-American girl, 94, 95. My father had just lost his bid for a fourth term as governor. Everybody's depressed. Uh, we hear him laughing. He's at my sister's house. He's watching TV. It's your show. And he was laughing because he was, first of all, because you're funny, but also because there was something about you being Korean. And we had had a very big budding Korean community where we were in Queens, but mm -hmm. it was always seen as another for my father, as an Italian. You know what I mean? Like he didn't grow up with Asian guys. He didn't really know them. And he loved the transferability of comedy. And yes. he loved that he thought that you were as hilarious as any comedian or comedienne, as they used to say back then, and that the ethnicity was irrelevant, except that it gave him insights in your observational genius that he really appreciated. So thank you for the gift to my family. Thank you. That is so fantastic. I'm so grateful for that. You know, um, I think it is really there are a lot of parallels with the immigrant experience that we all share. And so I think that's really comedy is an outsider art form and it's really brought to life by immigrants in America. So I think that we can all appreciate the same things. It is interesting in reading up for the interview, you have been relevant for a very long time and yet you are still in the power band of your career. You know what I mean? Like I, I grew up uh, as a young adult, I mean, we're basically the same age. You've been funny forever, and you have oh. matched the times and your passion and your sense of purpose has just continued to grow and mature along with you. How do you regard the longevity and the continuity? Well, thank you. I think I eat a lot of noodles, which is really <laughs> for long life, which is something also that uh, Italians and Koreans have in common. Yeah, it's a sore we spot a because we don't like that you guys created it. It comes up from time <laughs> to time. <laughs> well, we share it. You know, there's different interpretations. There's some fusion, which uh, I think is controversial. I feel like the emergence of Asian Americans, in particular in comedy, is really... Um, my greatest contribution. Like if I can just lean back and let all the kids do the work like that to me, I basically um, given the business to my children who are Ali Wong and Ken Jeong and Aquafina and, you know, so many amazing people, Hong Chow, who's, uh, uh, you know, Stephanie Sue, all these wonderful people who've just got 
Oscar nominations. You know, it's to me an incredible thing to watch this generation grow up. And so then I get to kind of watch it. And it's my uh, excitement around seeing Asian Americans in entertainment that I think keeps me going. So a buddy of mine is an actor, uh, South Korean, and uh, I told him that you were on the podcast. And he goes, oh, good. One of mine. And, yeah. <laughs> I, and I was like, yeah, yeah, that's right. She's Korean too. And, and he said, yeah, but you know, it matters because, you know, the joke is you all look alike. He's like, you guys, you know, especially white people. He's like, you lump all Asians together and it's still okay. And I thought about it and I was like, you know, one of the topics I'm going to talk to Margaret about is these last couple of shootings in California, Monterey Park, predominantly uh, an Asian community. But I don't even know what the ethnicity of the two shooters is. I know they're both Asian, um, yeah, but I don't know what country. I, I don't know what their nationality is. And yet I feel completely comfortable talking to you about it as having insight because you're Asian. Do we have to move past that? Or are you still grouped? No. no. Like if we look at Asian Americans, I think that we do embrace the fact that we are all one group in a sense. You know, there are definitely nuances and different identities within that, countless actually. But in Asian American terms, we're looked at by the majority as the same. So there, there's an equalizing factor to that. I think part of our political awakening comes from this need to adhere to these kind of tribal or like things that we brought over from previous generations, old wars that are still going on in our minds that are really from generational trauma. Do you think you and I get to see a day where when it comes to Asians, it's like, no, you don't say that. You say Korean, you say Chinese. If you don't know, ask, but you say Taiwanese, you say Japanese, you don't say Asian. We don't do that anymore. No, I I, I welcome Asian. I think- But Asian do you think that there's, that progress would mean that we don't do that anymore? There are different aspects to the idea of intersectionality where we're talking about a larger group in, in terms of Asian American identity. And so also, I'm also Chinese. So I can speak to the, the, the nuances of both cultures here. So that there's a kind of a thing of like, we want to melt down the barriers between Asian Americans so that we can actually look at ourselves as a group in terms of America and in terms of political power, in terms of a kind of social agency so we can be united there as we united at the beginning of the pandemic to stop Asian hate. And this is a kind of awareness that has only awakened recently. I think there, had a, there, there was a resurgence of it or an emergence of it in their early 70s, you know, kind of around this sort of second wave of the civil rights movement, but now we're having it again. There is an interesting media phenomenon I've seen happen from time to time uh, that I will flag for you because it's, it's about, uh, it is just starting to be used against you with these two shootings. Look for headlines that say, California shootings by Asians after... A big increase in Asians buying guns. Now, since the recent resurgence of attacks on Asian Americans, there's been enough coverage of that that people would think about defending themselves. I'm sure there was an uptick in sales. I see the data. I believe the data. But be careful about the trope that, uh-oh, another angry minority gunning up 
And now they're coming for us. Of course, it fails because in both of the incidents recently, uh, they were targeting Asians. It was an Asian man, right. yeah, but he was targeting Asians. Is there a sensitivity to that, that like, hmm, I wonder when they're going to go bad on us? The way that it's framed is it, it's really like not telling the whole story. You're telling part of the story mm -hmm. to further an agenda, which is kind of a lot of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what we're taking is, you know, a group of individuals who feel invisible, like elderly Asian Americans often feel invisible, yet targeted at the same time, which is a really traumatic place to be in. And you lump that in with um, the generalized uh, anxiety around COVID. Then you have generational trauma from war. And all of this stuff combined with the availability of firearms that you have, and also with the Asian American tendency not to seek mental health treatment. You have just um, a storm. I don't want to say perfect, but it is a perfect storm of real fear and um, anxiety that's coming to a head. And, you know, unfortunately, it it's us kind of buying into this idea that this is just an isolated issue. We've had so many gun issues. It's just, I don't even know what to do anymore about the gun violence. I'm, I'm really... I, I'm just so um, unable to even react because I, I just, I don't want to say I'm numb, but how much uh, tragedy do we have to face? I don't even know that it's tragedy anymore mm -hmm. because uh, I've always connoted a sense of surprise and abnormality to what creates a formula for tragedy. Mm -hmm. And this is who we are. And mm -hmm. I do always fear single factor solutions to complex problems. And as you just explain there are a few different irons in the fire here that lead to these kinds of events even taking ethnicity out of the equation they're complex situations and i don't think we're a single law away i mean we got dozens and dozens uh depending on the state of uh different types of gun control uh, mm -hmm. but i think that before you ever fix it you have to have a will to fix it the way is not as hard as the will because there are things to do with all the main components every mass shooting I've ever covered. Now, these last two, I don't know, because old guys is new to me. Yeah. Old Asian guys I've never heard of before. So, you know, I don't want to lump, lump them in. But school shootings, let's say, all the school shootings I've ever covered uh, with very few exceptions, and I've covered literally dozens, have um, three things going on. You have somebody who has removed themselves who is now at an age or a stage where they are resisting or not using what they were given to treat. So you got that. Everybody knows it, by the way. That's the second one, okay? And then they have access to a weapon. Now, the access to the weapon matters in a but-for analysis. There's no question. You know, you, you take away the weapon, and then what do you have? All right, well, you have a different weapon. Okay, but there's nothing as uniquely powerful. Well, what if it's a bomb? Okay. It's not as easy to make a bomb. It's not as easy to get a bomb. It's not as easy uh, to execute with a bomb. So this uh, takes a lot of the lethality out of it if you can get rid of the weapon. But the problem is you'll never get rid of the weapons. There are too many. So I really look at the other things as places that you should also be giving attention to and we don't. But I don't think there's a will. What do you think, Margaret? Do we have the will to do anything about it? And it's just the politicians holding us back? I don't know. Like, I look at um, the way Australia dealt with it after the Port Arthur shootings, and they just all, as a 
as a group, as a nation, collected the guns and turned uh -huh. them in. And it became, I think, this very honorable thing that was patriotic. That was, we're going to save our country by doing this. And I'm not sure if there's a way to put that out into American culture, that how do we make this life cool? How do we make li surviving cool? Let's make being alive cool. <laughs> Like that is really something that I think that's the impossible dream is to make this something that people want to do. I know, but you have this entrenched group who say, yes, Margaret Cho, I want to live. That's why I have the weapon. That's why I carry that little snub nose 38 in my purse so I don't get attacked on my way to my car again. Uh, that's why that guy shot the guy in the restaurant the other day. Good guys with guns. Those instances where a citizen has stood up to fight it and with a gun, it's so few and far between. Look at Uvalde. You have 400 police officers. Everybody has a gun. People who have been trained with firearms who do nothing. That um, mentality, that sort of John Wayne ideal of this hero, you know, it would be great. We are seeing heroic acts by, you know, the the young man who un, unarmed the guy in Monterey Park, you uh -huh. know, that that we see these um, acts where people are going above and beyond without firearms. And, the, you know, I, I very rarely do we see the good guy there to save the day. It's usually um, cowardice that wins over. Yeah. And look, I mean, a lot of this stuff is about the, our own personal mythology, right? I mean... You know, the Second Amendment was never supposed to be about what we've made it about. And we know that. We know it is a simple fact of history. It certainly wasn't even supposed to be second, not that the order denotes any type of range of importance, which we've allowed to be uh, ascribed to it wrongly. But it's part of our identity, yes. And you have this real minority that has outsized cultural cachet because people think, well, I got to do, I do have to preserve that right. I mean, I'm not a gun owner myself, but I do have to preserve that right. Well, I'm a hunter, so I, I got to have that. The hunting thing obviously doesn't work because you're using different weapons. You're not hunting with a handgun. And even then, there are only about 11, 12 million people who hunt. I saw a statistic uh, the other day that there are more people who went to a ballet performance in the last year than there are who hunted. So, you know, we're not all running around in toe shoes, <laughs> right? So, right. but it's a mythology. I just don't think we have the will. And like my team says, what are we going to do about these California shootings? I was like, well, first of all, the old Asian thing, throws me for a fucking a loop. You know, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't know. Right. I've been covering Asian American violence for the last few years as it peaked from the victim standpoint. You know, they're not known assailants. It's like when people go after the mentally ill as shooters, statistically, they're victims way more than their assailants. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's so little chance that anybody cares when I do it. And you have to deal with it also in your act. Like, what's worth talking about that people will care enough to laugh it's hard these days. Yeah, it's hard. You also get outrage fatigue where, you know, you can only be so outraged for so long. It's like, how how do we come uh, uh, to a place of looking at productive solutions for this? But also, like, I think laughter and comedy in general has an important role. And it's trying to find that wherever that is. The tragedy that I do feel is that you know, my my parents, the, all of the Asian elders, they love ballroom dance. You have taken the ballroom dance out of the joy of old Asian people. You don't even know how much they love. They love it. They love, my parents love it. I think it's kind of sus how much they love. You know what? They're doing something weird.
I don't know what they're doing. You've never gone. I have not gone. So you don't know what they do when they're there, to be honest. There's something in that. They just, it energizes them. I think it's also because it is something that they feel safe doing. You know, it's an Asian dance studio, but they're celebrating this very like European art form, which I think is kind of what ballroom dance is. So they're like able to go to a safe place where they could indulge in the joyful activity of white people and not feel like an outsider. You know, that's they're they're dancing to the like the big Asian hits from the 60s and the 70s. And it's really to me this beautiful thing that they're not doing in secret, but they're doing in a place where they feel safe. And that somehow being wrenched away is really heartbreaking. Have you talked to your parents about what this means? They are saying, well, when we do, we just dance on cruise, so we don't have to worry about gone. So now they're just going to dance on the cruise ship, which is fine. <laughs> it's still like they're, they, they're like, well, they have to factor in this into their own lives, which should be their golden years. They're in their late 80s. They shouldn't have to be afraid. And uh, so when I look at the victims of this horrible thing, it to me, it really wrenches something in my soul that, that, you know, I, I, just, I can't, it's unspeakable how horrible it is. So on the flip side of positivity related to dance, was the kind of zenith of your fame inside your own family when you took on the task of DWTS? Absolutely. That was like the only thing they've ever come to. They've never really, they've come to my shows, but they can't hear very well, That, but they can hear music. And they were, they were so, they would come to rehearsals. They would sit sort of on the side of the stage and just be just, just racked with fear and nervousness that I'm just going to make a mistake. It was like their Olympics. It was so exciting. So yeah, they love, they love dancing with the stars. They love all of that. It's just where they find a lot of happiness. Very controversial. I think the polls had it at about 97, 98% thinking that you should have won and that you weren't fairly taken off. Um, <laughs> but how was it handled within the family? How much shame? Well, they were, they were, you're robbed. <laughs> because they had the wrist of the palin. She did not do this very good. But because she looked just like her mom, that's why. So it was very politicized, actually. They're still sore about it. I was going through all this, and of course I remembered all these, but I really believe, you know, it's such a tribute to you. And by the way, you know, as my audience um, will know, I'm not a fawner <laughs> by, by nature, but oh. I do respect, coming from outside the curve, do respect people who uh, identify a passion and, and put it to purpose early. I mean, you know, you remind me somewhat of Eddie Murphy, who I'm also a student of. You know, he started really early in his teens, and it's not that unusual, but it's fairly unusual for people starting to want to do an act at 14 years of age and actually getting up on stage, you know, not just with their friends or at school. So I have a lot of respect for that. But I, I do want to talk to you about what you perceive in whether or not it is getting more difficult to be funny in America doing observational comedy. I mean, you tell jokes, but you're not like a the other day, I was on the driveway, and why isn't it called the parkway? You know, I mean, like, that's not <laughs> what you do. But observational comedy, is it getting harder? No, I think it's, I think what it is, is that we're looking for um, language to be more fair. And so that's why cancel culture exists, so that we can um, look to the power of language and the power of jokes in particular 
to humanize or dehumanize. And so um, there's a, an urgency to be more thoughtful in where you're coming from a space of like, are you coming from a place of privilege when you're talking about jokes? Or are you punching down, per se? So I think there's a need to look at that and need to look at language as saying, where are we going wrong in terms of our language where we can make things more fair? I believe it with respect to my broadcasting. Okay, like, you know, mm -hmm. if what, this would never happen. But I mean, if I were doing these stories tonight about the California shootings and saying these two Chinese men, and turns out they're not both Chinese. Ah, uh, yeah, whatever. You Chinese. All right, now you're being insensitive. You should, you know, you should say Asian. That's an accepted term. You should say uh, black. That's what the New York Times tells us we're supposed to be saying now, and you capitalize the B. They're, as the rules emerge for what we see as social evolution, follow them versus comedy where I am trying to make you laugh at something that we're not supposed to think is funny, which is part of observational genius that people like you have. Where's the line? It's something that we look to intention. You know, that's really where it is. And where we can find uh, a space where we're learning and growing, that's always going to be looked at positively. So, you know, I think it's just like we're, we're like moving along and we're trying to figure out what's right. And we as a society are learning as well. Like when I first started comedy 40 years ago, I didn't have headshots. So uh, the club put in their uh, marquee a drawing of a Chinese railroad worker from the 1800s eating a bowl of rice with chopsticks with a cute, the long braid and buck teeth. And it was so offensive, so offensive. And I, I had to talk to them about it. And it was really hard to do because I was like a kid. You know, you can't do that. And of course, later, I, I just didn't have a photo then, there in the, you know. But it was just, to me, like, they thought they were doing a good thing. They were trying to make it, but this is funny. It's an Asian comedian, so they will like this. But it's like, you know, so they just didn't know that it was inappropriate. That's how far we've come. And here's the thing, though. Um... And uh, I've been I've been using this more and more lately. What white people say when you're not around uh, is they put up an effigy of you thinking it was funny and they were wrong. Yes. They weren't wrong to think that because that's honestly what they thought. Let's just take them yes. at their word, right? That yes. they weren't trying to be intentionally bigoted. But no. they were wrong to believe that it was funny because yes. it's not funny to the group that it's targeting and that happens to be a minority and there's a difference. Right. The reason that white lives uh, matter is not the equation to black lives matter is because obviously they do. It's the majority and we're talking about how a minority is prevailed upon by the majority. Now, what will be argued today is, well, now we know that you're gonna get canceled if you put up that Chinese effigy, but you mm -hmm. still think it's funny. So we haven't addressed that part yet. We punish it. There's a consequence now, which resides almost entirely on the left in terms of our cultural dynamic. And I get into this fight with lefties all the time. They say, no, look at the right. They're the cancelers. No, they are advancing an agenda that is undergirded by bigotry within the Republican mm -hmm. Party right now. That's their choice by lining up with Trump. They made that choice, they have to own it. The left owns the, you can't say that or we'll punish you. The right just plays gotcha with it opportunistically. Right, But right. we still haven't addressed how to change 
why people think what they think about it. Okay. And I hear white people like right now, here, here's a huge one that you will never hear. You won't even hear me say it, you know, on any kind of forum where I can be easily taken out of context and judged. I don't have white friends, right or left, working class or working out well for them, who have college age kids who don't say, well, oh, it's going to be tough uh, for my son slash daughter slash whatever, because they're white. 95 student, captain of this and this, uh, you know, she developed the recycling program for the local community, but I don't think she's going to get in the Wellesley, you know, I mean, it's hard. She's white. Mm -hmm. They won't say it because they're afraid of what it will mean. But whether yeah. they're right or wrong, you have to reach people where they are. I believe this very much in all the hate that I've covered abroad, home, everywhere. You got to take them where you find them. You can't give them a standard that they don't understand yet because they'll just rebel against it. I think that's what we see in our own culture. I do feel sorry for white people sometimes. <laughs> it's a real, it's a, it's a hard road to hoe when you're white because you can't win at anything. You're so used to winning. It's really tough. I'm so sorry. But it's funny because it's like, that's where we get like a lot of like uh, sort of this idea of privilege. Like where do we go or how do we examine it? when privilege is somehow neutralized and taken away, not necessarily take, no, taken away, but neutralized and reversed. That's kind of what's happening is when this sort of the reversal of fortune feeling of like, I used to have this and I've had all media kind of uh, affirm these feelings and now it's reversed. Yes. And so that to me is really interesting. Like, how do we react to that? You know, where do we, where do we sit now? And then how do we assess what is privilege and what is real excellence? So what, where is the real excellence? You know, how do we know? How do we gauge it? Some places it's easy, but, you know, we've been running away from gauging. You know what I mean? Like, we don't even like testing our kids anymore. I got kids who, you know, one's in college, one's getting ready to go to college. He doesn't even know what the SAT is. You know, he's a junior yeah. in high school. He's yeah. not even thinking about taking. And, you know, all of their personal essays are about, you know, uh, you know why life is so hard for them. And... I, I think that what what we need uh, is something that, you know, you provide. I, I really believe part of the genius of comedy is that you've got to look at yourself and almost all of us will laugh at the same things because there's something funny. And I get very concerned about punishing comedy. Uh, even the Chappelle thing, that was a tough one, for, even for the left, you know, because he's such a totem of the left until the trans jokes. And then he did that whole special which was misplayed by the people at Netflix by trying to censor it. Censorship will always lose in America. Anytime that anyone says something shouldn't be said or something shouldn't be done, other than like something where people understand the immediate impact, like the N-word, okay, you lose. So like the left saying, people saying, don't let the Supreme Court justice publish a book, you lose. Chappelle's special was very interesting to me because I saw how hard it was for comedians like you to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And I don't know where it really left us. Like, where do things stand after that? Obviously, Chappelle can do whatever he wants. But what did we learn from that? Every comedian has an essential joke that's really part of the DNA of every joke they tell. So, like, mine is, I'm not supposed to be here, but I am. And somebody like Jerry Seinfeld is, is it me? Like, am I the only one? That's, is it me? So, and every joke he tells has that idea. And then Chappelle's is... I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to. Every single joke he tells has that DNA. 
So, and it can go across any subject. And so that special and uh, his jokes that were so controversial was really just a display of the essential DNA of what he does as a comedian applied to that subject. So my response always is let's hear from trans comedians. So I love Alok Fanon and Robin Tran and Patty Harrison. These are incredible trans Asian American comedians who have an amazingly brilliant take on all of the things that he's saying. So I would say, like, let's elevate the trans voices in comedy about this, as opposed to letting my own opinion, you know, that to me is favorable. I mean, one, your opinion would matter more to me because you're a comedian. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I really believe you're our last truth sayers um, mm -hmm. because we haven't been punishing you for saying things that are unpopular. Now, that's changing a little bit. It's changing a little yeah. bit. And look, I mean, obviously, Lenny Bruce, yes, yes. But even George Carlin you know, who uh, we really miss right now. We really yeah. miss him. Um, and people yeah. so misunderstood him at the end of his life. Oh, he's gotten so bitter. No, things had gotten so entrenched. Stupid became so acceptable. And the masses decided to accept stupidity in their leadership and in their own lives to a degree that he just couldn't take. It wasn't that he was bitter. Uh, when you would talk to him about it, I don't know what your relationship, if you had one with him, but it wasn't that he had lost it. But that kind of wake up, stupid, you know, you're getting played mm -hmm. for a sucker. Mm -hmm. We really need that right now. And look, to me, it was pretty intro. I was going to say pretty straight, but that would have been um, pun in, no unintended. Every trans person I talked to about the Chappelle thing was like, look, I think his shit's funny too, but people want to hurt me for exactly what he's making fun of right now. And that's the part that you have to remember. It's, I yeah, it's funny. He's funny. And I get the whole, I'm jealous because look at how LGBTQ is coming up and uh, black suffrage hasn't moved as quickly. I get his rationale. I accept his jealousy as an explanation in part, but people beat me up for the same reason that he has them laughing. And you just, you can't do it. I'm in too weak a position right now you know, let me get acceptance in society, let people get away from me just for being who I am, and then you can joke about me as much as you want. And I said, so is it punching down? And I was pretty much universally told, no, because I'm not below you. And I was like, no, no, I didn't mean it. like, they were like, well, that's what it is. You're, you're punching down like I'm beneath you. You can't punch down. If I said, right, but I'm saying like that you're a minority, but I'm not beneath you. And that's a key distinction. So I learned a lot from it. I just don't know that we learned that from Chappelle or even from the reactions to it. Right. But the weird jealousy around the LGBTQIA community is something that the right has a real, they really have a problem with it. Like Candace Owens say, let's add a C to the LGBT. What about an H for heterosexual? What about a C for Christian? <laughs> to me, it's really ridiculous. It's like we are fighting so hard just to stay alive. The LGBTQIA community, we're, we're barely hanging on, you know, with all of the violence directed at us. It's really like this weird thing of like, why are you jealous? It's so weird. Support for the Chris Cuomo Project comes from Done With Debt. Let me tell you, we're all dealing with it, especially in American culture, right? Because we're so credit sensitive. We have so much available credit. People take advantage of it. Often it takes advantage of them. High interest credit cards are real. Loans make it nearly impossible to pay off your debt. 
Inflation keeps just taking away what you can pay, keeps you stuck in almost a paycheck-to-paycheck existence. Done with debt can be a lifeline. Done with debt has this ingenious new system that gives you a way to deal with debt faster and easier than you probably thought possible. See, Done With Debt analyzes all the debt options that you qualify for. They know how to reduce bills, cut interest rates. They have a skilled staff of negotiators that know how to get debt out of your life. Ready? Permanently. Done With Debt has a bunch of experts. They've been doing this, and they know the best strategies to reduce and remove debt from your life. But you got to hurry. Because some debt solutions are time sensitive. Here's how easy they'll make it. If you go to donewithdebt.com, that's donewithdebt.com, right? D O N E W I T H D E B T.com, you can find the answers to your debt problems. Now, one of the things that I see happening in the political dynamic, DeSantis is doing this. And I think it's really interesting for people who are politically active and ideological to pay attention to. The idea that, no, 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 we don't teach African-American history. We teach history. And we are colorblind here because that is fairness. Now, I have to tell you, rhetorically, there is cogency to that in a vacuum. If you want something to be fair, what is justice? Justice is blind, right? That's how the statues are always portrayed. The application, the practicality, no, it's not blind, but that's how we portray it, blind to all of these things. That's fair. So let's just strip away any special protections and we'll be exactly where we need to be. And that is dangerous because it is compelling without any context of why you needed the protections in the first place. But that's where our politics are going. I'm telling you right now, it is going to be the pushback to all political correctness in the next presidential election. And you're seeing it with DeSantis right now. He's testing it out right now and he's doing very well with it. Yeah, it's shocking. I mean, because he's leaving out like he's just sort of giving you this idea of this utopia of like where everything's fair. But it's not. If everything really was fair, then you would have to put critical race theory in there. You would have to explain to people in school, to kids in school, about what they did when they lynched people, what the Ku Klux Klan was doing when they lynched people, what people were doing during that. It's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. It was happening. It's it's still happening. You know, there's so many instances where it's still happening. We uh, are so um, also blind to the reality of racism in America. And it's really shocking how much we were not taught in school. So if you're going to talk about how we need to teach history, well, really teach it. That's right. Really teach it then. That's right. You know, let's make history a blanket thing. Let's take this sort of idea of critical race theory. Let's take that out and like really teach all of the things that really happened, you know, when when we uh, became America. A big part of what I'm doing with my work right now is trying to kill the two-party system because I really believe it's at the root of all of this. People should be free agents. They should be independent. You can have an ideological bent. Everybody does. But you just get forced into binary. And I don't mean that in the sexual identity, gender identity way. But 
it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, of course you can only accept male and female, not just as biological uh, genetic determination, but by identity, because that's all you know. And everything else seems weird. And we're the same way with left-right. Every poll I look at now, every poll, one way or another, breaks down to 50-50. Every, every poll, should Santos resign, is 50-50. Because depending on which party you look at, you know, Democrats, of course, it's off the scale. But all registered voters, it's like 50-something yes, 20s highs, you know, highs 20s no, and then a big I don't know. But you have to combine the no and I don't know because that is the lack of ambition on that particular issue you net to 50-50. And I'm telling you, Margaret, we are not naturally 50-50 people. It's because we're forced into those boxes. When you ask Americans what ice cream they like these days. This buddy of mine does this kind of sampling, not polling, but sampling to kind of disrupt polls. It's like disruptive market research. They're like 60 different flavors that come up on a regular basis because we're not chocolate or vanilla, you know, with the occasional strawberry or pistachio thrown in there. There's like 60. And I'm trying to get away from that because I believe forcing people into the silos is the root of everything, including what we see in comedy and how, you know, worried certain comedians are that, oh my God, my act has to be acceptable, not just funny. (laughs) Well, I think it's like, it can be unacceptable. I mean, there is definitely a brand of comedy that is emerging that is really about rejecting all of those quote unquote values. You know, there's a way to do it. There's a way to do everything in art. Yes. But is the pursuit of art supposed to be a way, finding a way that will be okay? Or is it just putting it out there because you feel it? And it's, you know, it may, I may not go watch it. I may not choose your special, but you can do whatever you want. Except that I think it's a way to really fine tune and really look at your art form to make it what you want to say and, and make it so everybody understands. And that's always my goal. I just want everybody to understand. But you have had your share of having the right not like what you joke about. But you're also fairly aggressive in pursuing fights that you think are worthy, that are political, not just, you know, in the world of comedy, obviously, your work transcends it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a very politicized person, so I, I have a lot of deep-held beliefs, and it comes from being part of the queer community since I was a kid and um, having the people I was around in the 70s be early supporters of Harvey Milk and to, you know, have a real urgency around politics. You know, es- it's escalated, I think, since AIDS. And it's gone further and further and further and become bigger and bigger and bigger. But I I am, you know, really amazed at how little we've grown and how much we've grown at the same time. What scares you most? The weird, blind bigotry of Trump followers that think that he... See, Trump is not a politician. Trump is not um, some kind of savior. Uh, Trump is a narcissist and Trump is really in his own interest. He's not even right wing necessarily. Trump doesn't really believe in anything. He's not even a good businessman. He's just kind of like somebody that is so self-obsessed and obsessed with power and just decided that he could harness the power of the right wing and people who looked at him as sort of this uh, television hero. To me, the, the blind idolatry Talk about a golden calf. It's an orange calf situation. It's very strange to me. That, to me, is very scary. What's scary to me is that friends, and I'm, I mean it, friends. You know, I'm not one of those guys 
in the media, one of those people in the media who, who call people friends. I call everybody brother because I'm trying to, not you, but I'm trying to, you know, when I talk to other males, whether they hate me or not, I always say brother because I'm trying to remind people that there's something deeper than how you feel about politics, especially when you're getting played on it in the first place. And what was so weird to me was guys I know, and it was almost all guys because in the beginning, Trump did not have a lot of female followers who are nothing like him, who would punch somebody's teeth out if they behaved the way he did around anyone who mattered to them, would never have him on their boat to fish, would not have a drink with him, would not hang out with him. It would never happen. Backed him. And I was like, okay, help me. I don't like him because he's mean to me and my family, and he puts me at risk because he has these jackass drunk followers of his come to my house, and they're going to be oh, problems no. because I am not as evolved socially as you, and I am not as responsible as I need to be sometimes with the position that I have. Uh, and those are my weaknesses, and I'm trying. But he put me in a jam, that guy, uh, just for doing my job. So that was my beef. I said, now help me understand why you back that guy. And they say, I'll tell you why. One, your people, because obviously if you're not Trump, you're a lefty. You know what I mean? You, you can't just think that he's a liar. You have to be an opposite because that's a binary game. It forces you into it. They'd say your people, meaning, you know, my people, everyone else except Trump, they suck too. At least he's honest about it and what's happening there. And you guys want to replace people like me with people who are in the minorities, which is fine, but you're doing it by force. And everything about me is now bad. And they believed it. And my only concern is it's something that's easy to mock, easy to make a joke about. It's growing. Mm -hmm. It's growing. And yeah. you will never beat it by making fun of it. You will never yeah. beat it by galvanizing the minority against it. Because the key word would be minority. It has to be what has been in the shortest supply, except on Twitter, where it's misplaced by cancelers, which is the allies in the majority. Everybody who hates me on Twitter, with rare exceptions, is a white male. Rare exceptions. There's some exceptions, especially thanks to my brother. There's some exceptions. But white males are really angry at me. And I believe the person who is the next transcendent leader in our country lets those people know, listen, things are going to change, but it's going to be better for everybody. Okay. It's not just bad for you and good for someone who doesn't deserve it. That's not what it is. It's better for everybody. And those of you who are good at what you do, we're, we need you too. That transcendent idea, which is not in any way violating any of the political correctness or the ambitions we have of diversity, that's the next transcendent leader. I just don't see him out there. I agree. I mean, who's that going to be? I want we need that. We need, we need that leader. Who do you like? Who do I like? I'm voting for Cho just because I love the ink. Okay? <laughs> you had you. me at the ink. Uh, but oh, I'm a big you. fan. Big fan of good ink. Not stupid yeah. travel ink. Um, <laughs> thoughtful, artistic ink. Uh, thank you. But who do you like? Gosh. Um, I don't even know. Because you guys don't have a great bench. You know what I mean? Like, you know, Biden, <laughs> yeah, know. Biden has got his work cut out for him. And then? I don't even know who has a big position. I mean, you guys have really put a beating on Harris. Uh, you have not served yeah. her well in that position. And it's hard. it has degraded her. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in a race way. I'm saying, but by position, I mean, she's just hurt. 
You know, everything that's come out has been bad for her since she got in there. So she's not in great position. You've got a... Uh, You've got your governor in California, but there is something about I his, love Gavin. There's something about his sheepishness, though, that you have to question. Because if you want to lead us, <laughs> you've got to take a punch in the face with a smile and figure out. And I don't know that he has it. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm saying I haven't seen this. I have the same question about DeSantis. I don't believe that he knows how to fight in a way where he has to own it in real time. And that's why Andrew Gillum was kicking his ass on the ground in Florida. You know, before all Andrew Gillum's personal issues came out, DeSantis had a problem with retail politics. Newsom looks phenomenal. I would trade faces with that guy in a, heart, a heartbeat, but I don't know how he'll do retail taking the beating. What do you think? I would like to bring back Howard Dean. I have him on the show a lot. He would never run again, and he's so hateful at what the system has become. I love Howard Dean. He is the good doctor, and he would just be great. I'm always going to be, I love Bernie Sanders. I love Hillary. You know, Hillary has already been president very successfully. So <laughs> she knows what to do. If she ran again, House. you would support her? Absolutely. I supported her last time. I think we really, we went so wrong as a country when we did not elect her. And I, I still really think, you know, she just would have done such an amazing job, and I think she still can. But, I mean, it's like who, I don't even know, like who uh, who to look at, who we can look to. Stacey Abrams, I think, is amazing. Um, Raphael Warnock is amazing. But the fact that we're, we're doing a runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker yep. is a huge, it's a huge problem. That's what that I was going to say. Now, was Georgia... And Warnock broke 20 years of history by getting the seat in the first place. Forget about it, as a black man, and I don't mean that because it was huge, but as a Democrat, you know, yeah. he'd been the first one in 20 years. So, yeah. and he had his work cut out for him against Herschel Walker, who was Santos before Santos. He was not as bad as Santos. I mean, you know, Herschel Walker did play football. <laughs> you know, he was a great football player. Um, wasn't a cop. Uh, you know, doesn't work closely with law enforcement. I got seven of those badges that he held up at that debate. You know, I'm sure you could get one. You go visit, you know, the police auxiliary somewhere, tell some jokes. They'll give you a badge. OK, you're not yeah. going to make any traffic stops, but you can hold it up in a debate. But I do think that you have to be mindful of that, that people who play left. Once you flick that switch in somebody's head, see, that's why I'm saying the person has to be transcendent. Obama's gift when he first entered that, because he didn't have the pedigree, but he had the presence, he had the identity, and he had the transcendent feel of, you know what, I haven't even been in this game long enough to have the stink of it on me. I believe mm -hmm. in something better about us and for us. And even the alchemy of him being Barry and then Barack and, you know, being uh, African-American, but also white, you know, it's like, wow, maybe this guy's like the best of us. You know what I mean? He's like, mm -hmm. this is the melting pot. You know, this is what we we're going yep. for here. Took a few generations, but we got one. And I think that has to be the kind of person, like I think Wes Moore, who ran Robin mm -hmm. Hood. That guy, do you like him? Do you know him at all? I don't think I know very much about him. This guy checks a lot of boxes, a lot yeah. of boxes. Yeah. And he is not a big partisan. He's a Democrat. I'm not, you know, he speaks for himself, but he has to be. You know what I mean? Like, you can't not be an R or a D and get elected anywhere because you won't have the money machine behind you. You know what I mean? It, it, you won't win. 
And well, if you have enough money personally, you can do it. Yeah, go ask Bloomberg whether or not you can do it by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. And that's why what I push for people is, is to be free agents. You could be, a, you could be a shameless lefty. I got a family full of them. But you don't default to a party just because there's a D there. You got to listen to what the person's saying. You got to listen to what the other person's saying. You got to see what you're investing in there. I think that's our future. Right. What do I have wrong? Right. I don't think you're, you have anything wrong. I think that's right. That's a tall order, though. It's hard to uh, figure out who that would be. I, I like John Fetterman. I think he's really got that sort of working class part as well. <laughs> yeah. That he's speaking to people that really understand. He like he's speaking everybody's language. Mm -hmm. You know, Trump speaks to the working class, but he's never been working class. He doesn't even know what that is. He doesn't know what it means. Well, he doesn't like working class. You know what I mean? Like if his grandson said, hey, I want to go into plumbing. He'd be like, what? <laughs> um, you yeah. know, so I don't think he has the love for that. Sure, he'll hire the trades on a project and he's a, a really talented demagogue. And there's a reason the Greeks didn't give us a positive opposite for that word. Um, we are not whipped up by our loves and our empathy and our compassion the way we are by our fear and our anger. And he plays to fear and anger. And right. he identified it in the largest group of people right, which is white males, because even though you have more white women, you have too many women who are controlled by the man in their life. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they play that proxy in politics. That's still true uh, in many parts of the country and in many socioeconomic brackets. And he played to that. And I think that he's still got a shot. And mm then -hmm. I do. You're not going to prosecute mm -hmm. him out of a primary. And I really mm -hmm. believe that it's a mistake to keep going after him because I think it's making him a victim. You're not going to get him. You know, you saw it in New York. You're not going to get them. And even if you do get them now, nobody's going to believe it. It's true. Look at Joe depressed. Frustrating. You ain't laughing now, Joe. <laughs> it's not that funny anymore. <laughs> but oh, look, no. I, I really see it. I really see that there's such a vacuum. You need somebody. You know, I'd love to say they're going to come out of nowhere. You know, that they're running some company or some school right now. And they're going to leave and... And come out and like, you know, everyone from Margaret Cho to like, you know, a, a Bill Burr, you know, you know, like comedy giants are going to say, now this guy, this woman, this person, that, all right, now I'm hearing something. But yeah. they'd have to be crazy to want to get into this because someone like me who does my job a different way is going to find that one person that they punched at that one party, that one time they got that one ticket, mm. you know, whatever it is. And I'm going to ride them down into the ground. Yeah. So why would they yeah. want to get in? I mean, there's got to be somebody. There's got to be somebody. I believe there's somebody. And, and, and you know, maybe we already know them. Maybe we know. They're, they're something that we, they haven't shown us yet. So we'll see. That would be the hope. And here, I'm going to end where I began. Our best hope to get to our better place is our brightest lights. And in our culture, thanks to Warhol, we call them stars. And you are one of our stars. And you have shown us where we are for most of your life. And this is going to be the most important phase for you because this, these are the years that are going to be written about, Margaret. From 2015 yes. until 2030 is going to be one of the most active periods in American history. It's certainly in our lifetime, you know, even yes. clawing back, you know, before our relevance into the 60s. Since then, mm -hmm. this is what people mm -hmm. are going to be talking about and you've been a factor, and we need you as a factor, and it's really great to pick your brain about where we are and why we are, and I thank you for it. Thank you so much. 
You got anything coming up that you want people to know as they devour this episode of the Chris Cuomo Project? <laughs> I'm going on tour. I'm on tour with all of this. Um, it's called uh, Live and Livid. So it'll cover it all. It starts on uh, February 18th in Vancouver, and it goes everywhere. Very cool. I am covering Vancouver in an upcoming episode because they want to legalize fentanyl distribution. Va Vancouver has been very avant-garde when it comes to how to deal with addiction. And harm reduction. I think harm reduction yeah. is a really great, I really think it's really important to look at it from this angle uh, where we're distributing Narcan, where we're really getting real about drugs. Test kits, the test strips, the Narcan, but fentanyl is a different monkey uh, than I've ever dealt with before. I've been in that addiction game, uh, drug game, a very long time, uh, personally and professionally. I've never seen anything kill the way this thing does. Yeah. Uh, not yeah, since they were putting dirty angel dust and stuff in the 80s. Um, but that's because it was it was toxic, so it was killing people. Never seen anything like it. Yeah. But I've also yeah. never seen anybody like you. So, Margaret Cho, good luck to you going forward. Great luck on the tour. You don't need it because you're good. Thank you for being on. Thank you. She can be funny, but she is smart. And to me, that's always the key to the best observational comedy. You know, I think the people who make us laugh are some of the smartest among us. You may like the jokes, you may not like the jokes, you may agree, you may disagree, but it's all got to be out there. That's the marketplace of ideas. So our thanks to Morgan Tro. I hope you can pick up an opportunity to check out her show, Live and Livid. Sounds very cool. You know she's put thought into it. You know it's going to be funny. So please subscribe. Please follow. Don't forget the free agent merch. Don't forget News Nation. If just a fraction of you guys would be watching the News Nation show, giving us a chance at 8 and 11 p.m. Eastern, you'd change our fortunes. So there's a button right on the page. Let me know if you want to check it out and let me know what you think. I'll see you next time.